Well, if you are new to church or new to this church, my name is Carl Gully and um, actually serve with Antioch. And J.D. Griffin is the senior leader here, and he's on a sabbatical right now. So we've, I've been stepping in and leading with him and um, really got to spend some time with him this week and just getting to share hearts and just so proud of him and love what he's doing and love that I've gotten to be with y'all these last several weeks. But uh, I promise I have preached before, so this isn't like a trial run. I've actually been doing this for about 25 years. So as a result, people constantly ask me, you know, Carl, what is the hardest type of sermons you preach? And they always think it's going to be something like about the end times or, you know, does the Holy Spirit move today, something like that. And I always say, it's Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter. And people are shocked and they're like, why? I'm like, because everybody knows what I'm going to say before I say it. On Thanksgiving, guess what we're going to talk about? That of thankfulness. Yeah, at Christmas, guess what we're talking about? Jesus' birth. Shepherds, angels are going to make their way into the story, right? Uh, at Easter, what are we talking about? The cross and the resurrection, right? So I don't have some secretive material that I'm going to pull out that you're going to be like, we had no idea, you know? So, so I guess the question when you come to a service like this is, how do we all hear what we've already heard like we've never heard it before? And one question maybe to help kickstart this is a question that I had never thought of before that hit me this week as I was preparing, and it's this. If we believe that Jesus came and he died and then he came back to life, my question is, why did he not immediately go straight to heaven? Like, why did he die on a cross and then he said, it is finished? He goes into a tomb and three days later, instead of soaring, which I think would be a beautiful production moment, if the tomb opened and he just soared up and we, everybody watched, we're like, wow, he was the son of God. Like it would have been a pretty insanely awesome moment, but it doesn't happen that way for the next 40 days. He sticks around on this dirty, broken, oppressed planet. Why would he stay one minute longer than he needed to when perfection of heaven was waiting and a heavenly father was calling? So let that question just marinate with you a minute, and maybe I could tell you a personal story that might help make the point. Because, um, you know, a couple of years ago, I was going through a, kind of a, a tough time, and someone recommended that I take a look at this movie called The Shack. Now, if you're not familiar with The Shack, it's a pretty controversial book and movie. Even, um, basically, there's people who are like very pro this book and movie, and people who have devoted their life because they're against this, this book and movie. So, but I... Couldn't negate the fact that it has sold over 22 million copies. It's one of the most best-selling books in the history of Christianity. So I went ahead and watched this movie, and I was so touched by the way that God met this man in the movie who was really hurting and broken. And I mentioned it to my friend. I was like, wow, the way that God ministered to this hurting person was really healing to me. He was like, hmm. And the next day, I woke up to an email from the author of The Shack to me. And it wasn't like, subscribe here. It was like, hey, Carl, Heard you might want to spend some time together. If you'd like to do so, let me know, and I'll move my schedule around tomorrow. And I was like, is this a prank? Like, somebody, you know, somebody, JD's behind this. Somebody is not right, you know. And, um, I, and I was basically put him to the test, like, okay, how about three tomorrow? And he's like, great, I'll move things around, and I'll make it happen. Here's the Zoom link. The next day, I, I go to the Zoom link, and it is Paul Young. And he ends up just spending time talking to me about my story and my life. He lets me just pester him with questions. And I'm trying to be intuitive and every 30 to 45 minutes, get off the call. You know, like, don't bother the guy. And he won't let it go. He just keeps, he keeps going and he keeps going. Over two hours, we spend time together. And at the end of the call, he's like, Carl, now you have my email, you have my phone number. Don't be a stranger. Let's keep this conversation going. 
And I hung up the phone and I was in tears and my wife was like, well, what's going on? I was like, I still, I don't, I don't know. What I know is I'm actually pretty good at kind of sneaking into the orbit of famous people. I know how to get near the stage or near the table. Oh, hi, you just happen to be here. And I can, I've done that a lot throughout the years. It was so strange to have the famous person doing all they could do to move heaven and earth to get into mine. And I was more touched by that than I was if I agreed with his storyline or what he shared. I was just so moved that he had moved heaven and earth to get to be a part of my day and a part of my story. Because I think we would all agree it's pretty interesting when we get pursued by someone who really doesn't get much out of the deal, but still chooses to come and be with us regardless. Interestingly, when Jesus comes back to life, we have 10 different accounts of him showing up to all kinds of different people, crowds as big as 500, all the way down to two people, just letting people know, I see you, I love you, and maybe the reason he did is just simple, he wants to be with us. Like, in fact, isn't that his name, Emmanuel, which means what, God God with us. The problem is, we just read in Luke 24, sometimes he's with us and we don't even recognize that he is. Why? It could be our pain, it could be our, the busyness of life, our chaos, we're just trying to make it through the day. And it's hard to believe this perfect and, power and powerful, very famous God is going to move heaven and earth. Come be with us. So if you relate to that tension, then I want to encourage you today that the scriptures are filled with people who God was coming to try to be with and they didn't even recognize it. Like, let's, it's it, it, like very first book of the Bible, Genesis. There's this legend named Jacob. And it says in Genesis chapter 28, verse 13, it talks about a ladder going from heaven to earth, not earth to heaven. It wasn't about Jacob getting to God, but God coming to, to him. And it says, I am the Lord in verse 13. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. Catch Jacob's response. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. So we've been in a series these last several weeks where we've been trying to say maybe some of us have been spiritually asleep and we've not been fully aware of God's nearness and his presence. And if that's you, then you relate to this or what Chris shared at our ministry moment earlier, then you just need to be encouraged. Again, Jacob's type of dilemma you see all throughout the scriptures all the way up to Luke chapter 24. And I thought that would be a good place for us to go today, right to that first Easter Sunday to evaluate this dynamic that we keep seeing and then figure out what is the remedy for it. So let's pick up the story in verse 13 and 14. If you're not familiar with this story, it's called the road to Emmaus in many Bibles. It says, now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were walking, they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. So they're walking away from Jerusalem they're walking to Emmaus. At face value, this is two very unfamous disciples. We don't even learn one of their names the entire time. They're just simply going to another city. But Jerusalem represented something deep to them. It represented the hub of their spirituality and the hub of where their, their faith dream began. And just a week earlier, Jesus is coming to town on a donkey and people are throwing down blankets and jackets and yelling Hosanna, meaning our king has arrived, basically. They're, they're celebrating in the streets. That was Jerusalem. But Jerusalem also represents now where Jesus has been crucified. So what was their dream is now their nightmare. It represents a lot of pain and they are trying to get away from this place. Now, this is what's interesting. What's so special about Emmaus? It, historians don't know because it's, this is the only time it's mentioned in the Bible. But 
Emmaus in Hebrew is hama, which means hot springs. So some scholars have dug into this to find that there's some hot springs in that area and have wondered if it was like a quaint little tourist attraction. And they have wondered, maybe these people are proving to the world that we all want a spa day when life gets really hard. And so they are just like, let's just get out of here. Let's just, it'd be about seven, you know, seven miles, a couple hours walk that way. And I read that, I thought, that's so true. Because after the last few years of what we've all been through, we, we all were made for comfort, but we will settle for relief. And these disciples are, are leaving the pain and they're headed for an escape. And verse 15 tells us that as they talked and discussed, Jesus himself drew near and walked along with them. They saw him, but somehow did not recognize him. Is this stunning to anybody else that they can't recognize Jesus? I mean, it's a bit of a mystery at one level. These are two people who have walked intimately with Jesus and the disciples, and they are looking at him at point-blank range, and they don't know who it is. So this is unfathomable to me at one level and completely relatable to me at another level. Anybody else? I mean, I think we do the same thing. We're all living between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, somewhere between where our faith took a hit over here, and we haven't, like Chris said earlier, we've not seen the resurrection. We're all kind of living in the middle of that space and just wondering, how do we continue to see when we can't see? You know, like I told you when I made this call, I wasn't really doing too well when that Zoom call happened, and right around that time was Christmas, and you're supposed to feel magical on Christmas, and you're supposed to feel magical on Easter. What do you do when you don't? Matter of fact, Christmas of 2021, I woke up about three in the morning with having some nightmares, and I couldn't sleep, and I just praying like, God, please, I just want a whole night of sleep, and I couldn't sleep. I finally, around 3.30, got up, and I just went outside and made a fire. I looked down and I saw a Max Lucado book on my coffee table because I'm convinced if you don't have a Max Lucado book in your home, you may not be a Christian. I mean, we all need to have one of his books. And so I've not read it. It just was on my coffee table. So I just, I just <laughs> grabbed it and I went and sat down by the fire and I'm just starting to read. And it's, he's, he's talking about a story in the scripture of rescue. On the opening page, he had this question, do you believe your moment of relief is coming? And I'll be honest, tears started welling up and I almost threw the book in the fire. I was just like, I don't believe it because this has been a long run, God, and it doesn't seem like you are anywhere to be found. And I'm thankful I didn't throw it in the fire because I turned a couple pages over and he said these simple words, God need not be loud to be strong. And I found myself saying, God, it's not that I don't love you. And I look at these disciples and I, I, it's not that they don't love him, it's just God, I don't see you, I don't hear you, I don't feel you, I, I don't feel like I know you anymore, and the, the hope is fading. And I think that's why this story makes so much sense to me. It might be why it makes a lot of sense to you in this next part specifically. In verse 17, Jesus asks them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? I just, this is so funny to me. I mean, how many of you have learned that when Jesus asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer, Right? I mean, he already knows what they're discussing, but he's still asking the question, why? Because he wants to hear it out of your mouth. He wants to, your mouth to speak to reveal what's going on deep inside of you. You might be familiar with that scripture that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So he's leaning in saying, what's going on in deep inside? It says, they stood still their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, 
are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I mean, this is comical because Jesus is actually the only one who does understand what's been going on. He's the only one who clearly gets what's going on above the surface and below the surface. But he sees their soul is downcast because their face is downcast. So he continues. He's like prodding, like, come on, I want to know what's going on inside of you that's affecting your outside. He prods again in verse 19. What things? He asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He, what notice this, was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Do you see the past tense? A lot of hopelessness here. But remember, Jesus had done his level best to prepare them for this. I mean, you go 15 chapters earlier, and what did he say? The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. I mean, it's just like right there. He has given them prophecies, predictions. He's given them scriptures and warnings. He's done all of this. But in their mind, they have been told for generations, a rescuer is coming. They called him a messiah. A Messiah is going to come. And in their mind, he is a spiritual force, a political force that is going to come and overthrow the oppressive regimes of that day and usher in something brand new. So in their mind, they cannot fathom how that one would be crucified. So even though he may have told them, get ready, what they are living off of is, is bringing them into deep, deep confusion. And again, lest we judge them, I'm not sure we're too far off of that. Because we've all been told how the story ends. We all know what's going to happen in the end. If you don't, it's in Revelation. You can go read it. Kind of weird, but you'll get there. Just go to chapter 22. It'll make sense. We all have an idea of how the story ends. Like Chris said, we know how the, the Lazarus story ends. But what we're seeing here is they are allowing their circumstances to dictate their view of God, as opposed to their view of God dictating their circumstances. Anybody else relate to that? Maybe in the last seven days. I do. Otherwise, how do I find myself wanting to throw a Max Licato book in the fire on Christmas morning at 4 a.m.? Poor Max, he's done nothing to me. But how do you get there? Well, the way I got there was because one year before that, my mom had passed away. And three months after that, a mother-type figure who was a mentor to my wife and I um, developed brain cancer, and I felt like the Lord said he was going to restore her. And I contended for her life. As a matter of fact, my wife and I were the last people to see her before she took her last breath on her little hospital bed there, praying with tears in her eyes, God, you're still a God of resurrection. I've read the Lazarus story. You can do this, God. And then he didn't. And then this thing called COVID came around. I took a beating on social media, and things just kept sticking, compounding over and over again. And I was like, God, I used to believe for really big, impossible things. I'm okay with just surviving today. And if you want to come back, I'd be fine with that made for comfort, settling for relief, and just numb on the inside. If Jesus had been standing right there, I would not have recognized him. In retrospect, I'm convinced that he was and made sure that a Max Licato book got there and a guy that sold 22 million copies of a book got my email somehow. But I couldn't see it. Why? Because just like those guys, the crucifixion has effectively wiped out their hope. So Jesus has to come and knock scales off of eyes. Verse 25, he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Just so you know, this is the strongest rebuke we see Jesus giving someone in the book of, in the book of Luke. But he doesn't do what we think he's going to do in rebuke. He's not ranting and raving and being like, ah, and storming around, turning and go the different direction. He is slowly, methodically, patiently walking. I mean, it would have taken at least two to three hours, if not more, to make this walk. And he is just slowly walking, taking every step with them. Tell me more. Tell me more. Watch what he does here. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Don't you want to download that podcast? Don't you want to know what was it like to hear Jesus do a Bible study from Moses all the way forward? I mean, I don't know what he talked about, but I know if you go to Deuteronomy 18, 18, Moses declared that a prophet would be raised up against, uh, among them. Maybe he looked at David in Psalm 22. Maybe it would have hit a little bit closer to home because in Psalm 22, David says one day they will wag their heads and they will say, he trusted in God, let him deliver him. And it would not have been just two days before that when Jesus was on a cross and they were like, well, you believe in God? Let God deliver him. Maybe he's referring to Isaiah 53 because Isaiah said that someone was going to come and be crushed and would be pierced and would have stripes on his back that would lead to our healing. Or maybe it was Ezekiel who had four different prophecies about a shepherd coming up down the line of David. Micah had said that the Messiah would be born in the town of Bethlehem. I don't know what the Bible study was. All I know is that Jesus is putting all the dots together for them. And that now is after the fact, they're looking back, and you can see the beginnings of, huh. Kind of like for all of us. It's usually after the fact when we look back and go, Oh, resurrection of life, and Lazarus comes back, to, comes back to the life. Oh, that's what was going on in my life. I just didn't recognize it at the time, didn't see what he was doing. In other words, God was closer than I realized. I just couldn't see it. And let me just pause right here to say this to you, friends. I want you to, to understand that the story of the Bible is not primarily about people's desire to be with God. It is an account of a God who wants to be with people. And so much so that he would show up on a random road on the way to an obscure city to interrupt two unknown disciples escaping their pain and reveal himself as one who can save and rescue and redeem all because he loves us and wants to be with us. Now watch what happens here. It says, so they drew near to the village to which they were going and he acted as if he were going farther. I just, Jesus is a comic. He's a cut up. We just don't see it. I mean, if you're, a, if you, if you're new to Jesus, if this is a brand first time in church or you don't know Jesus, he does this kind of junk all the time. I mean, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are just filled with weird moments where Jesus walks over, sets people's hair on fire, and then just walks off. I mean, he, and he says weird things like, you know, if you, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. You know, in the front row is like, did he just say to be cannibals? Like, what is he talking about? You know, unless you pick up a cross and follow me, you have no part of me. There was a farmer. He had some seed. He threw it out on four different soils. Three of them died. And then he just walks off. I train up a lot of leaders, a lot of young pastors. I would fire Jesus. I would definitely have fired Jesus. I'd be like, Jesus, our goal is not to confuse them. We are trying to connect the dots. And Jesus just smiles. And I think he would say, I'm not trying to confuse them. I'm trying to entice them. Because it was the disciples who would always pull him aside and say, what did you mean by that? 
In other words, he's looking for hunger. He's looking for that, that little flicker inside of us. He's very clear. I'm doing 99.5% of the work. I'm taking your sin on my life, your shame, your pain, and I am putting it on me. I'm going to die, come back to life, overcome death and the grave, offer you spiritual transformation, life and love consistently. I'm just asking for that last 0.5% of you to go. I'm just saying, can you turn? Can you look at me? And if they would turn and look at him and see he's acting like he's going farther, what if I just reached out and said, don't? And that's exactly what we see here. It says in verse 29, but they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And I think the promise is for us, that last 0.5%, that little prayer, that little God, I see you right here. You're near to me. He responds. He doesn't go, nope, y'all can go in that house and figure it out for yourself. What's he do? Verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. <laughs> I mean, classic Jesus. What made it all click? I mean, what made them all of a sudden go, it's him? I mean, it's a fascinating study to do, both a Bible study and a historic study to figure it out. There's lots of reasons. And I can't say 100%, I know. I will say that, is, that it, there are some different scholars who suggest that, that Jesus took that bread, he lifted it up, and when he did, just like my sleeves have come down, Jesus' sleeves would have come down and it's possible they could have seen the scars in his wrists. Which, regardless if that happened or not, we know he did have those scars. And it's kind of mind-boggling to me that Jesus came back to life, raised to dead by Father God, the Spirit himself, and he kept his scars. Because he knew that Thomas and some other skeptics throughout the years, like us, would need to put our fingers in those scars. Say, is it really you? He kept those scars as a way of healing for us. But it could be that it was when he broke the bread. And they would have known that Jesus broke the bread. He did it multiple times with all of his disciples, especially at the Passover like we talked about last week. In that communion moment, their resurrection is what gave them revelation. Only Jesus can do this. He's the resurrection and the life. And maybe in that moment, something clicked and they saw him. I wish for us, something like that could happen always as well. Just today, if so, I would have bread up here. I would break it and y'all would all explode into worship, you know, and it would be, it'd be there. Our journey sometimes moves a little bit slower towards healing, but it's still available nonetheless. But notice what the key connection was. Remember, he's called them slow of heart, foolish of heart earlier. And in verse 32, once they have this recognition and realization, it says, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? In other words, the key from going from slow hearts to burning hearts was he talked with us. 
the scriptures came alive and something in us was burning and it was, he talked with us. I mean, I would just say this is, this is the story of the scripture. As a matter of fact, I would promote that this is the central promise of the Bible. Here's another question. What is the central promise of the Bible? Is it that God will forgive you? Actually, that's all throughout the scriptures. But I would not say that's it. Maybe the central promise of the Bible is that there's life after death. For those of us who give our life to Jesus, we too can find his forgiveness and we can know that when we die we will be in heaven and it'll be a blip on earth that will be here in an eternity and maybe that's a central promise of the bible that's all throughout the scriptures but i would suggest that's not it i would suggest the central promise of the bible is this i will be with you and we saw it from genesis i'm with you you just don't see it luke 24 no i'm with you you just don't see it and it's not as clear so what he did is he makes sure to keep bombarding his people over and over again. So he comes to us through a burning bush and through a talking donkey and through a dream and through a rainbow and through an earthquake, through a storm, angels visiting teenagers, a hand appearing out of nowhere, writing on a wall, a still small voice, a resurrected Christ who's showing up in the middle of nowhere to two nobodies to show them that they are somebody to him. And so I just have to wonder if maybe he made sure that for the next 40 days, he was like, I want to be with them. And I'll go on two to three hour long walks. But if you're really honest, I bet you would think, I don't understand all this stuff about God. And you'd spend about five minutes and you'd be like, I bet he's kind of, kind of tired of this. And maybe you came to church today because God really isn't that much about what's going to happen in here. He wants to do about a two to three hour walk with you out of here. You go, I just want to walk with you. What's really going on inside? What do you really think about me? Where's your faith really taking a hit? You're like, I don't really want to say that. No, 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 just tell me. Where, where's the pain of life gripped you? No, just, just bring it up. And it could be that he's been walking alongside of you all this time. You just didn't see it quite as clearly. Last year, I was asked another question that deeply impacted me. Again, 25 years in ministry. Talked about prayer a lot, done a lot of prayer myself. It was my mom's claim to fame. But the question was, what if prayer has less to do with words you say and more to do with your constant awareness that God is with you? It really hit me like, wow, what if my goal is just to be alert to the fact that God's with me in every moment? Again, I know that. Again, I'm a pastor. If I don't know that, someone get me out of the game. Like, you know, I know this. But do I just live taking my kids to soccer practice like he's with me? Do I just live in the midst of chaotic confrontations? Just He's with me. And I'm looking at him and he's looking at me in love. Do I live in that way? I read this quote around that time and I make sure to read it about every week. It's by a guy named Brother Lawrence. I wish I could tell you his story. But I read it consistently because he said these words, the most holy and necessary practice in our spiritual life is the presence of God. That means finding constant pleasure in his divine company, speaking humbly and lovingly with him in all seasons at every moment. Finding constant pleasure in his divine company. 
What if God could be that close? We've already seen it's very, very possible for him to be that close and for us to not recognize that he's there. And so this morning, I just want to ask you that basic question. How certain are you that he's that close, that he wants to be that close, and that he's up for a two to three hour Zoom call, ready to move heaven and earth to just be present to you because the story of scripture is an account not of our desire to be with him, but of his desire to be with us. But it could be that either we're asleep or something's happened and we're just not able to clearly recognize that he's there. And so what we thought we would do today is to take communion together. We didn't want it to be rushed. We want to just give you a moment here where you kind of picture yourself being at the table with Jesus. Now he had, you know, bread and the wine. We've got a little plastic thing that you pull back and then there's a wafer underneath that and then you pull the foil and then there's some juice there. But we want to just give you a moment to be with God and to sit into that truth of do I believe his desires to be with me? To find constant pleasure in his divine company and for you to just pour your heart out like those disciples did because there's no rush here. There's no thank you God for the cross. Thank da, da, da. Like No, this is like you intimately pour your heart out to him. It might be that you're here today and actually you've never given your life to Jesus. If so, then we'd say that communion is not something for you to take at this point. But it could be that your first step is to take, make communion with God. You might be sitting there going, man, has God been with me all this time and I didn't recognize it? Because in my, of my sin and the fact that I was headed my way, and really what salvation is, is the moment that you realize, I need to stop going my way, it's not working, and I need to turn, repent from my sin and accept his forgiveness and his leadership and follow him with all my heart. And it could be that today that's your first step. Say, Jesus, I want all of you all over again, and I'll drink you down to the last drop. I want you in my life. So if you would, just all of us close our eyes here. And if you already have a relationship with Jesus, just start talking to him. Pour your heart out to him. How, how convinced are you that he just wants to be with you? Has your faith dream taken a hit? Are you settling for relief? You just pour your heart out to him. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus and you want to have an Easter Sunday moment where you are convinced the resurrection is real and I need that in my life, then I'd encourage you to pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I've been going my own way. And I've had sin in my life that's kept me from recognizing you. But today, I ask that you would forgive me of my sin and you would fill my life and that you would lead my life for the rest of my life. And again, if that's you, just pour your heart out to God and thank him for his salvation, his Holy Spirit, his nearness. And for the rest of you, I'm just going to let you take these elements at your time, on your own timetable. Just take a minute. I'll pray for us here in just a minute, but just take a minute. 
pour your heart out to the Lord and take those communion elements when you're ready. Lord, we know that when we take the bread and the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We thank you for your cleansing. We thank you for your forgiveness. But more than anything, we thank you for for the fact that you are pursuing us, that you love us and want to be with us. Today, we take pleasure in your divine company. And I'm asking for my friends that even as we leave this place, that we just be more alert to your presence in every single minute of the day to be able to enjoy the presence of God, because we want our hearts to burn again within us, in Jesus' name.